1: You know when you had to write an essay for school and it had to be a certain number of pages so you'd bump up the font size and make the margins a quarter inch bigger on both sides? I'm not saying I did that, but maybe I did that. Republicans today took that trick, that high school trick, and they took it to its logical extreme.
2: New this morning, House Republicans on the Judiciary Committee release a 1,000 page roadmap detailing allegations of political bias
0: in the FBI and Department of Justice under President Biden. It's just a preview of what a GOP controlled majority may uncover from the administration after the midterm.
1: Now, I know what you're thinking. A thousand pages. They must really have some damning evidence in there. But no, this is the high school big margins trick times a thousand, literally. As The Washington Post puts it today, the report itself is less than 50 pages. So what's in there? It's more than 700 pages of already public letters, and those are mainly just dozens of duplicates of the same two letters. And then there are about 300 pages of just signatures. Talking Points Memo characterizes the report as nothing more than a who's who of Fox Fox News flavored grievances and conspiracy theories. But those grievances and conspiracy theories aren't just filler. They are, in fact, a preview of what a Republican majority will do if it controls Congress. If Republicans retake the House on Tuesday, one of the authors of this 1,000-page treatise, Congressman Jim Jordan, will be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And Jim Jordan won't just put out more reports based on filler and Fox News. He will launch actual investigations based on filler and Fox News. This quote-unquote report today is targeting the FBI and the Department of Justice, which, of course, are the agencies investigating President Trump for taking hundreds of classified documents with him to Mar-a-Lago when he left the White House and for his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, leading to a violent attack on the Capitol. So now Republicans are gearing up to sling mud and cast out on those investigations because those investigations are about to come to a head imminently, like in the next couple weeks. That's the current thinking, because yesterday, longtime Trump loyalist and aide Kash Patel testified to a federal grand jury in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation after he was compelled to do so in exchange for immunity. Patel has asserted, without evidence, that he personally witnessed President Trump declassifying all those documents. So Patel's testimony is central to that investigation. And we now know that Patel was asked questions about that specific claim, about declassification. He was also asked why Trump took classified documents to Mar-a-Lago in the first place, a question that we would all very much like to know the answer to. And that is on top of the news that the FBI has been trying to get more information from two other Trump aides involved in storing the documents at his beach club, and that a very senior high-level prosecutor has recently been brought on to help with the government's case in all of this. As for the DOJ's January 6th investigation, we know the department has already spoken with multiple high-level aides and has also issued over 40 subpoenas to Trump allies and seized the phones of some of them. Those investigations are very much a live issue. They are full speed ahead. Now, as a rule, the Department of Justice does not take overt public actions against political figures in the run-up to elections. But after Tuesday, the gloves are off. The New York Times now reports that the Department of Justice hopes to reach a decision on whether to bring charges against former President Trump before the 2024 presidential campaign heats up and has held discussions about possibly appointing a special counsel to oversee a potential prosecution of the former president, which makes this scoop today by the very well sourced Jonathan Swan at Axios. It is why it makes it such a big deal. Swan reports that President Trump is thinking about launching his presidential campaign in 10 days' time, on November 14th. November 14th is also conveniently the day Trump has been asked to testify to the January 6th committee in Congress. Speaking of which, we have breaking news tonight from that very same committee. President Trump blew past today's deadline to produce documents that have been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. The committee informed the former president's counsel that he must begin producing records no later than next week. It also reminded Trump that he remains under subpoena for deposition, deposition testimony starting on November 14th. So November 14th could be a very big day here. And it means that there might just be a six-day window between when midterm voting ends and when Trump may announce another run at the presidency. Whether Trump will stick with that schedule remains uncertain, but Trump has always seen running for president as his lifeline, his get-out-of-jail-free card, the thing that could stall and complicate these investigations. To assert that any criminal indictment is nothing but a calculated effort on the part of the Democratic president, Joe Biden, to smear the presumptive Republican nominee for the same office. In this case, that is who Donald Trump is hoping to be. Attorney General Merrick Garland has always known that he has limited time with these investigations. Republicans have made clear they are going to make Garland's life very, very complicated should they retake Congress. That has all been spelled out in their thousand page letter. And now Trump land has drawn another line in the sand, uh, a potential presidential announcement, potentially 10 days from now. So what should the Department of Justice do now? Joining me now is Jonathan Swan, national political correspondent at Axios. His sources in Trump World have enabled him to publish dozens of Trump-related scoops. Swan also won an Emmy for his memorable, very memorable interview slash grilling of the former president in 2020. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here, especially in this very big day of news and on a Friday night to boot. Um, Let me just first ask you how confident you are in the reporting that Trump is very seriously eyeing an imminent announcement. We won't peg it to a certain day because this is Donald Trump yeah. after all. How yeah, certain yeah. he is a, that he is going no, to actually right. <laughs> throw his hat, hat in the ring here for a presidential bid in the in the coming weeks.
3: Um, as certain as I can be with the caveat that it's Donald Trump. Um, They are preparing for it that week of November 14th, Uh, whether it's November the 15th, November 16th, who knows. It's also, as we put in the story, depending what happens on Tuesday night matters. You know, if Republicans have a terrible night in the Senate, that could affect the timing. If there's a runoff in Georgia, that could affect the timing. But they are targeting that week of November 14th uh, for the announcement. And they're looking at potentially doing an announcement followed by what was described to be as multi-day event. So a rollout consisting of multiple political events um, following that initial announcement.
1: How much—I mean, when we talk about timing, you talk about the sort of political landscape. Is Trump walking into a newly emboldened Mm -hmm. Republican Party that is aglow with the wins that they have? Are they more hobbled than they expect to be after the election, etc.? But what of the dueling investigation—I say dueling. There are so many investigations, but in particular, Mm -hmm. the Department of Justice investigations. How much is that figuring into all this? Because we know Merrick Garland is on a clock here, and Merrick Garland knows he's on a clock, and Donald Trump knows he's on a clock. How much is Trump thinking about that right. vis-a-vis the announcement?
3: Well, I haven't Heard this directly from Donald Trump. So I, I haven't. Uh, he hasn't said this to me, but advisors of his have told me over the past six, eight months that he does see running for president as one of his best defences against these investigations. Being a live political candidate, which he's been toying with for, you know, he keeps escalating his. Re- he's now saying in his speeches, it's almost comical. He said, "I'm very, very, very probably going to announce anytime soon, etc." So he's really been. Operating like a live political candidate for months now. And he does see that as a protective mechanism. Obviously, formalizing it and announcing it takes it to another level. But th- he's very cognizant of that, uh, I'm told.
1: It is worth noting that in his legal filings, Trump has mentioned his potential candidacy. August 22nd, a filing requesting the special master. President Donald J. Trump is the clear frontrunner in the 2024 Republican presidential primary and in the 2024 general election should he decide to run. Another filing in response to the DOJ's filing, three weeks after an unprecedented, unnecessary and legally unsupported raid on the home of a president and possibly a candidate against the current chief executive in 2024. I mean, this is not something He's been subtle about, and and he will use it quite no, obviously. No. Should there be some kind of indictment, who at this stage is advising him on all of this, Jonathan?
3: When you say all of this, do you mean the legal side of things or the political as, side? As of things? he,
1: as the political, as the political and legal intersect, I guess I'll sp- speak. I'll ask you to speak specifically to mm. the political piece of this. Uh, do you set, do right. we, we know a little bit about the legal team, and there is frac- there's a. F- factioning yeah. in the legal team. But on the political side, who is he getting his advice from?
3: Yeah. His main—one of the misperceptions or misconceptions about Donald Trump is that, um, you know, I often hear it sort of said in punditry, sort of surrounded by—I often hear, are there any adults in the room? You know, sort of idea that he's sort of surrounded by circus clowns. It's not accurate with the with his political team. He's actually surrounded by fair in, in terms of his core political team. They're fairly seasoned. Susie Wiles, veteran Republican operative uh, from Florida, worked for Ron DeSantis, um, very experienced. Tony Fabrizio, very experienced Republican pollster. Brian Jack Younger, but well-regarded. Chris Lassavita, really quite a heavyweight Republican strategist. So, the separate question is, does he listen to them? Um, and, and that is sort of uh, depends on the situation, depends on the day, depends on the moment. But his core political team are actually, some of them are reasonably establishment um, in their in their sort of um, political backgrounds um, and not as uh, fringy as I often see sort of suggested in uh, in some of the commentary about them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm Familiar with Susie? Weil. she was involved in the DeSantis campaign for governor in 2018, among other mm. Republican campaigns, are are they concerned about these investigations? Are they taking them into consideration as they weigh a potential presidential bid?
3: If they are, they wouldn't tell the likes of me um, or other boys. They're actually that inner core political team is quite disciplined in that sense. They're not running their mouths about whether they're worried about um, investigations and such. Um, so I actually don't know is the truth. I know people in his wider orbit um, are wondering whether be, uh, running for president under indictment in today's Republican Party um uh, is that a bad thing? In any normal universe, it is. But, um, you know, the base, Donald Trump's base is extremely energized by this fact. And certainly they saw a bump in, in energy for him after the Mar-a-Lago, uh, search was executed by the FBI. So I don't think people have a, have a clear idea of that, um, whether it's going to be a plus or a
1: minus when you're talking about Republican primary voters. Yeah, it's worth noting, as much as it could energize the voters, it is very different to be served a criminal indictment when you are a sitting president than it is a former president. And that is something that should factor somewhere into all of this calculus. Jonathan Swan, national political correspondent and Axios with some great scoops. Thanks for your time tonight, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Now I want to turn to Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration. Matt, thanks for joining us tonight. It is a strange time in the world in this, um, you know, and this I won't call it the calm before the storm because it's anything but calm. But we're looking at a week next week that could be and the coming weeks in November that could be hugely consequential. Merrick Garland is no stranger to political reality. What do you make of, I mean, first of all, what do you think his best options are here? We There is talk of a potential special counsel appointment. Are you, a, do you think that that is a viable option? Do you think that's a good option for Merrick Garland as he tries to navigate the politics of all of this?
4: Well, I can understand why they would consider it, because certainly once Donald Trump is a declared candidate for president, there are people who are going to question the integrity of uh, an attorney general of the opposing political party uh, investigating him as a declared candidate. But I think it would be unwise. Uh, The reason to do it is to bring uh, unquestioned integrity to the investigation and instill public confidence. But let's be honest, the people who uh, are supporters of Donald Trump aren't going to believe that this investigation is fair, no matter who is conducting it you know Merrick Garland could appoint Bill Barr as the special counsel and Donald Trump would say it was a witch hunt against him and the people that want to believe that are going to believe that and it would be fine to go in that down that path if there weren't downsides to appointing a special counsel but i think there are some practical and political and and governance reasons not to do it the most important is a practical one that with him running for president the thing that the justice department needs to have at top of mind is speed they need to move quickly because the political and the legal calendars start to interact with each other in ways that are really complicated and really unhealthy. If you if you think about uh, the case potentially being indicted, let's say it was indicted in the spring. If he were indicted in the Mar-a-Lago case in March or April, you're looking at probably a year until trial. So then he would be coming uh, to trial in the spring of 2024, right in the middle of the Republican primaries. Uh, if he were convicted, he would be sentenced sometime over the summer, maybe the fall, right in the middle of a General election, if he's the nominee, and then you have this kind of bizarre scenario of if he was if he was sentenced to jail time, having to report to jail, you know, maybe around the time of the election or in the period between election and inauguration. So it gets really complicated. And what that means is the the, the Justice Department needs to move quickly, and it takes time to appoint a special counsel. It takes time for them to hire staff and go through the, case, the, the 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 case files and the legal theories. So I think it would be a mistake for a number of reasons. Most importantly, that practical one of speed.
1: So what What is the what is the um, utility of kind of floating this idea that they're considering a special counsel if it's not really a viable option, if it doesn't actually alleviate any of the political pressure on Garland or Biden for that matter?
4: Well, I suspect they might actually be considering it. I don't know that they meant to, to to float this. There are some very good reporters reporting on the Justice Department that might have dragged this out. They probably are weighing it, because there is an attraction to it. Look, if you're the attorney general, you're thinking, I'm going to come under all this criticism. The way I can make this decision look um, uh, uh, more fair and, and I can instill public confidence in it is to make sure, let's say I appointed a Republican to be the special counsel, and then people will know that I've accepted a recommendation from a Republican uh, uh a Republican appointee. It can't be questioned as unfair. Um, But I have to tell you, um, there are kind of you know, a political and governance reasons not to do it as well. The, the political reason, I'll just say, anytime a special counsel is appointed to investigate a president, or in this case, a former president, it automatically becomes kind of seen in the public eye as a match between that prosecutor mm. and the president. Think of Ken Starr versus Bill Clinton or Mueller versus Trump. This would be the special counsel versus Trump. Versus if it's a U.S. attorney and AUSAs, assistant U.S. attorneys, who bring cases in their districts uh, against people all the time, then you're just having Donald Trump be treated like every other citizen of the United States, pro- investigated and prosecuted for crimes, just like every other citizen. You don't have this same kind of political target placed on a special prosecutor's back in the way that we saw Donald Trump put a target on Bob Mueller's back and mobilize his allies in Congress and mo- mobilize the right-wing media against him. He'll do that anyway against the Justice Department, but I think it's a little different if you just have career prosecutors handling this case in the normal order of business.
1: Yeah, denying Trump the straw man seems critical in all of this. What's your expectation in terms of of a criminal indictment for Mar-a-Lago? Given the fact that Cash Patel was interviewed yesterday, the the sort of high-priority targets, if you will, are all—they're in the mix at this point. That, I think, to the outside world signals that this thing may be coming to a close. Do you think Merrick Garland is going to issue an indictment this month?
4: Uh, I don't know about this month, but I think an indictment is overwhelmingly likely. If you look at the facts of this case, the former president clearly had knowledge. He clearly had intent. And it's a, it's a mishandling of classified information case where there is something else. There always has to be a something else, either disclosure of a number of documents or sharing them with people who shouldn't have them uh, or obstructing justice. And there's a very, I think there is very clear evidence that he tried to obstruct justice in this case. I think the, uh, the, the evidence is pretty, pretty conclusive. And so, I suspect that once the election is over, you may not see an indictment this month, but you're going to see the Justice Department move to to continue to call witnesses before the grand jury and maybe take some more overt steps that they haven't taken to try to move pretty quickly to bring an indictment in this case, if not this month, I think in the very coming months. Because, look, Merrick Garland is not unaware of this political calendar that I laid out at the beginning, how that interacts with the legal calendar. He can't be unaware of the need to move quickly in, in this case. And given the facts that they've already gathered, I think they have the ability to move quickly, and I think that's what you'll see them do.
1: There is a lot coming up this month, a lot of known unknowns. Um, It is going to be a very interesting time to be alive. Matt Miller, (laughs) former chief spokesman for the Justice Department during the Obama administration, thanks, as always, for making the time and sharing your wisdom with us, Matt. Thank you. Coming up next, Senator Bernie Sanders is in Wisconsin making a closing argument for Democrats ahead of an election that will have an extraordinary impact on the fundamentals of democracy in that key swing state. He joins me right after the break. Plus, four days before the election, Elon Musk is making gigantic changes at Twitter, including pink-slipping the staff in charge of monitoring misinformation. NBC News senior reporter Ben Collins joins us later this hour with exclusive new details. Stay with us. Election Day is just four days away, and no state embodies what is a stake quite like the state of Wisconsin. For the first time since 1977, one party, the Republican Party, could end up with a legislative supermajority. That is a two-thirds majority in both the state Senate and the state assembly. That would give Republicans the power to override a governor's veto. And if that governor so happens to be the incumbent Democrat, Tony Evers, it would render him virtually powerless. Now, the foundation for this takeover was laid a decade ago, thanks to Wisconsin's aggressively partisan political maps, some of the most breathtakingly gerrymandered districts the country has ever seen. Thanks to that foundation, which has resulted in Republican political power that far exceeds their actual votes, thanks to that, Republicans this year are within striking distance of clinching that supermajority. The New York Times reports that they need to gain five state assembly seats and just one state Senate seat, to achieve near total control of the Wisconsin state government. These Wisconsin Republicans are so confident they will win that they have vowed to bring back the 146 bills Governor Evers vetoed in his first term. And they don't st- they will not stop there. They have also set their sights on being arbiters of elections in the state. That supermajority would allow Republicans to get rid of Wisconsin's bipartisan elections commission and take over voting procedures and the certification of elections. In the end, that power grab may be a moot point if the Trump endorsed Republican candidate for governor, Tim Michaels, if he wins on Tuesday. At a campaign event this week, Michael said, quote, Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. As a reminder, Election Day is Tuesday. Joining us now from Madison, Wisconsin, where he is holding a get out the vote rally is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, thank you for making time to be here tonight. I'll get right to it. Do the voters that you've been talking to, do they have a a sense of urgency, of alarmism over the stakes in their state in particular and how it may not really effectively be a functioning representative democracy after November 8th? Well,
2: The answer is yes. And all I can say as we arrived this morning, we did rallies in Eau Claire. We did rallies in La Crosse. We got a really nice turnout here in Madison. And I think here in Wisconsin, which is such a pivotal state, the issues are pretty clear. And that is whether we vote for the incumbent, Ron Johnson, who actually wants to eliminate the minimum wage at a time of massive income and wealth inequality, wants to give giant tax breaks to the rich and then cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. So the choice is clear. And I think Mandela Bonds has an excellent chance to win.
1: What you I think alluded to a little bit of your closing message, there's been a lot of talk about how Democrats should be framing the stakes heading into this election day. The president's been talking about threats to democracy. A lot of Democrats have focused on abortion. What has been your closing argument to the voters you've spoken to and especially to young voters?
2: Well, I think there's no question that we have to vigorously defend a woman's right to control her own body. Obviously, we have to be strong on climate change, but we're not going to have much of a planet to leave our kids and grandchildren. But, Alex, you cannot ignore the economy. Sixty percent of our people are living paycheck to paycheck, while the wealthiest people in this country are becoming far wealthier. So we need to fight for an economy and a government that works for all and not just the few. And I think those are the issues that the American people here in Wisconsin and around the, around the country are responding to. Why are we the only country, out major country, not to have health care for all? Why haven't we raised the minimum wage to a living wage? Why haven't we been more aggressive in terms of child care, making public colleges and universities tuition free? This is, in fact, what working families want. They're sick and tired of the rich getting richer and they're struggling to put food on the table. I think we got to focus on those issues.
1: Senator, you're raising a lot of concerns that voters have. How aware are they of the things that this administration and Democrats have done to help the working class, whether that's student debt cancellation? Probably,
2: well, there, go ahead. Yeah, well, we have no, yeah, there are two answers. The American Rescue Plan, I think was enormously consequential. I'm going to talk about it tonight. People have forgotten that it was Democrats without one Republican who put $1,400 check into the pockets of every man, woman and child in this country in the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. It was Democrats who provided a $300 tax credit for parents to be able to raise their kids with dignity. We extended unemployment when hospitals, as you will recall... We're on verge of collapse. Some hospitals because of the huge influx of COVID patients. We put billions into helping hospitals. We put billions of keeping colleges and universities afloat. So I think that's something to be very, very proud of. And I think we got to remind the American people that we did that with zero Republican support.
1: You you mention abortion and climate change as issues in some ways separate from the economic message, but I wonder if we're missing an opportunity to frame both climate change and abortion as economic issues. Certainly having control of over the number so. of children you need to clothe and send to school and raise is an economic choice, and certainly climate change Absolutely. has a direct Absol- impact on the economy. Is is that happening anywhere? Is anyone doing that? How do we need to think about those two things differently?
2: Well, they are, but The issue is also, of course, abortion is an economic issue. Of course, climate change, if we do not get a handle on climate change as a planet, as a planet, you're going to see more drought, more flooding, massive types of economic destruction, more mass migrations of people around the world who can't farm, who can't find clean drinking water. Of course, it's an economic issue. Not to mention the tens of billions or more that we're going to have to spend to rebuild destroyed communities. But right now, I think if you go out and you ask people and they're saying, I'm having a hard time filling up my gas tank. I'm having a hard time putting food on the table. I'm having a hard time paying for childcare, sending my kids to college. Those are also issues we cannot forget about. Inflation, you know, Republicans are talking about inflation. Well, it's a global issue. And most of the inflationary costs in this country are associated with the grotesque level of corporate greed that we are seeing. Record-breaking profits for the oil companies, the food companies, the pharmaceutical industries. They are ripping off the American
1: people. They
2: are raising prices. We gotta focus on that and hold them accountable and pass a windfall profits tax, which is the right thing to do.
1: Well, and President Biden was talking about that windfall tax earlier this week. Are you getting a sense that people are connecting the dots finally on inflationary pricing and corporate greed? I think a lot of people, honestly, up until recently, did not fully understand what was happening in the corporate sector as it pertains to the consumer pricing. Is, Is that message finally, is that reality finally sinking in?
2: I hope it is. And it really is, you know, Alex, if you step back and you say, look, this is such a terrible time. We're dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with a terrible war in Ukraine. We're dealing with the breakdown of supply chains. And in the midst of all of that, these CEOs that make millions of dollars a year in compensation, they say, what a great time to raise prices nobody will notice. How disgraceful is that? And I hope people are understanding why they're paying four, five, six bucks for a gallon of gas. That has to do with the greed of Exxon Mobil and Phillips and of the other major oil companies. And I hope they understand that when they go to the grocery store, prices are becoming unaffordable. It has a lot to do with the greed and the food industry who are making record-breaking profits as well. So what this is all about, all of these issues are related, whether it's climate, whether it's women's rights, whether it's corporate greed. And the struggle right now is not to elect candidates like Ron Johnson, who literally does not believe in the concept of the minimum wage. He would be OK with people working for four or five bucks an hour, who wants to give a $1.75 trillion in tax breaks to the top one-tenth of 1% by repealing the estate tax and use that that money to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So, you know, to me, the the... The issues are quite clear and the choices are quite clear. And I hope people come out in large numbers to vote, especially young people, working people, to understand that this is the most consequential midterm election in our lifetimes.
1: Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont live in Wisconsin on the campaign trail. Thank you for making some time for us tonight, Senator Sanders. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you very much.
1: Coming up next, we have brand new details on the January 6th committee's effort to piece together what exactly happened inside of Donald Trump's motorcade on the day of the Capitol riot. And later this hour, former Twitter employees are ringing the alarm bells about Elon Musk's changes to that platform. NBC senior reporter Ben Collins joins me with his exclusive reporting. That's next. Stay with us.
0: Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is hard. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call if you're paying too much for wireless service you don't have to keep having that nightmare consumer cellular has the same fast reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up and call one eight 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 freedom or visit consumercellular.com
2: savings based on cost of consumer cellular
5: single line one five and ten gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by t-mobile and verizon january 2024
2: the president said something to the effect of I'm the effing president take me up to the capitol now to which Bobby responded sir we have to go back to the west wing the president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel Mr. Engel grabbed his arm said sir you need to take your hand off the steering wheel we're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle, And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles.
1: We all remember that bombshell testimony from former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson relaying what she was told happened inside the president's motorcade on January 6th after that rally at the Ellipse when a Secret Service agent refused to take Trump to the Capitol to join his angry mob. Trump, according to that account, got physical. Now, NBC News confirms new reporting today from CNN that the January 6th committee is planning on meeting soon, as soon as next week, with the driver of that SUV, the SUV that, according to Hutchinson, Trump tried to grab a hold of and drive to the Capitol. We are also learning that the committee was expected to sit down today with a Secret Service agent who was in the lead car of Trump's motorcade that day. That's the car ahead of the SUV that carried Trump. No word yet on whether that meeting happened, but the committee is apparently very interested in hearing from members of the Secret Service. In fact, CNN is reporting that the committee is planning to interview at least half a dozen more Secret Service agents in the coming weeks, including current and former officials and agents, which is in addition to the ones they have already spoken to. On Wednesday, according to reports, the committee interviewed a Secret Service agent who was in charge of one of the teams tasked with protecting President Trump on January 6th. And yesterday, CNN reported that the head of Vice President Pence's security detail that he testified behind closed doors. Now, that is important for multiple reasons, but particularly because January 6th committee member Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren dropped this bombshell of her own last night. There were
2: people with arms, with guns, uh, not going through the magnetometers. And then the president told those people with guns to march to the Capitol.
1: But it's not at all clear that anyone told uh, the vice president's detail about this. The committee is not sure anyone thought to mention the alarming and terrifying intelligence to the vice president's security team that an armed crowd was in the area where the vice president would be spending much of the day an armed crowd that had its sights set on the vice president. You have to wonder why the Secret Service would have kept that detail under wraps. The more we learn, the more we want to know. We'll be right back. 40 million. That is a number of election-related tweets sent on election day 2016. Then came 2018, which according to Twitter, was the most tweeted midterm election in history. One of those tweets included this video of voters waiting in line in Snellville, Georgia, one hour after the polls opened. According to the user, this happened because there weren't enough power cords for the voting machines. After that tweet was posted, NBC verified the information and responded that the holdup was indeed due to a lack of power cords. The machines were running on battery power and they ran out of a charge. A verified political strategist asked the user for the address of the poll site so she could report it to the NAACP, and by nightfall... Polling hours were extended. And how did voters waiting in Georgia's long lines find this out? The NAACP tweeted the breaking news that they had won their case arguing for extended voting hours. Breaking. Voting times will be extended by three hours in two precincts. Polls will now close at 10 p.m. per court orders. For many Americans, Twitter has been the place to look on Election Day to keep up with what's happening in their state and across the country. It has been an essential tool for messaging and organizing through elections and pandemics and social movements. Twitter has been the virtual town square where we exchange information and ideas about some of our biggest challenges, which makes the massive changes that Twitter's new overlord Elon Musk has implemented just days before Election Day. It's what makes them so insidious. Reportedly, starting Monday, Musk will require the 400,000 verified users on the platform to pay $8 a month to keep their blue verified checkmarks. But he's allowing all users to pay for a checkmark, too, with no plans to verify that the paying customers are who they say they are. Now, the point of the checkmark system launched in 2009 was to address misinformation, to prevent fake accounts from impersonating real people and organizations. Now the point appears to be to to increase revenue for Elon Musk's new company. At least one Twitter employee working on the new blue checkmark subscription product got locked out of the company's systems last night during a meeting, and that is how that person found out they were fired. They were one of nearly 3,800 people fired in the past 24 hours as part of another one of Musk's big changes to the platforms, mass layoffs affecting half of Twitter's workforce. Here's a look at who Musk has decided to get rid of. The curation team is now gone. They helped guide users to reliable news sources instead of conspiracy theories. About half the company's security team is now gone, raising concerns about users' privacy. The human rights team, also gone. They worked on protecting human rights, human rights advocates, journalists, and citizens in places like Ukraine and Afghanistan and Ethiopia. The ethical artificial intelligence team is also gone. They were doing research on algorithmic bias, like unintentional political bias on the Twitter platform. All this happening after Musk shut employees out of the content moderation systems that are required to limit misinformation. That's something he did last week. Musk only agreed to renew access this week after civil rights leaders complained about the possible spike in misinformation and hate speech. This, all of this is the field of play in the virtual town square days before one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime. Joining us now is Ben Collins, a senior reporter covering disinformation, extremism, and the internet for NBC News. Ben, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. So, the timing on all of this. Now, granted, Musk just purchased the company, right? Yep. But he's aware that there's a midterm election happening, and that puts all of this in the crosshairs of so many complicating factors. Do you think... It's on purpose. It's in spite of that. How do you read these drastic decisions ahead of just a really potentially fraught period in American politics?
5: It's hard to know, but the ethical thing to do here would be for him to just wait until midterms, right? Uh, And that is not what he did. He fired people four days before midterms, half, basically half the company four days before midterms. And in the process of doing that, he got rid of the health team, you know, the, uh, the curation team, anybody who would be able to you know, suss out lies from facts on a platform that is about to be inundated with people impersonating other people. Right. uh, Those people are gone.
1: And at a time when we have real-world elections deniers running for office, trying to effectively affect the vote, polling, uh, policing policing polling stations, I mean, the the opportunities for misinformation to spread are... Are so abundant, it's hard to even enumerate all of them. What practically happens? the co- the The curation team is gone. So yes. how do we? How are we going to start to see the effects of that as Twitter users, as the audience here? Sure,
5: I, I think there is a different user experience for Elon Musk, who's the richest man in the world, yeah, than somebody waiting in line at a polling booth, right? Elon Musk doesn't have to wait in line for anything, but uh, in this case, um, you know. People waiting in line at these polling booths would, in fact, like you said, go to, uh, you know, a, a local election official's uh, website, you know, uh, maybe a, a, a county commissioner's website or something like that, Twitter, that would tell you where to go and what to do. Elon says he's going to take down public officials, sorry, uh, sorry, public figures who have been impersonated, celebrities, things like that. But how do you know that, you know, I'm if I say I'm Ben Collins and I run the Pennsylvania you know, State Board of Commissioners or something on Tuesday... How are, how, what team is responsible for taking down that account right. with a brand new verified badge that puts you in the same spot as journalists? Elon Musk, is, uses, Elon Musk uses Twitter for status and to hype up his own status, things like that. And he views the website as a status, status machine. And he mm. thinks he views other people in the same way. Most people do not use the website that way. Most people right. use it in a utilitarian way to find out if there's an earthquake. Yes, or to find out if something is happening if down the, the polls street.
1: Hour, the polling place hours have been extended.
5: The po- yes, exactly. We're like, if you type in loud bang, when you hear a loud bang in your neighborhood, right? Yeah. That's not how he uses this. He uses this as a political vehicle to get what he wants. That is putting our voting rights in danger by Tuesday in a very dramatic way. It could be really bad. I, I, I'm i trying not to like sound the alarm and sound, sound hysterical here. But if everybody has... A verification badge on Tuesday. Nobody has a verification badge on Tuesday. There is no official account for anything. It renders it all meaningless. And we're all going to find this out the hard way. This is just going to be something that we learn over time, hopefully not dramatically on Tuesday.
1: I mean, what does... The civil rights leaders have been approaching Musk. They clearly are having some amount of influence here. Do you sense that there is more of that pushback to come? Do you sense that that is an effective way of pressuring Musk to keep in place some of these safeguards, I mean, there aren't actually the physical bodies in the office right. to execute on some of this security and anti misinformation monitoring. So, what what's the best case scenario for what can happen here in terms of public pressure on Musk and the staff that he has left in the office?
5: Well, so far, he has doubled down on the conspiracy theorizing that there is some sort of liberal elite that is trying to, uh, you know, uh, make it so Twitter does not have advertisers anymore. Uh there's like a you know a big cabal. Because of people. they're unhappy. Because they're the unhappy with the changes he's made. Um and he's doubled down on that all night long so far tonight. Um, I think he will continue to do that. Look, at the end of the day, this guy made a mistake. This guy bought a website he couldn't really afford. And uh, he is leveraged against several banks. And he tried to back out of it for months and months and months. Yeah. And he couldn't do it. And now he is saddled with this website. And maybe the best use of it for him is political revenge.
1: Wow. Well, it certainly looks like that's what it's shaping up to be. It's definitely giving a platform to people who have been uh, marginalized for spreading misinformation and hate. And we are seeing the full flowering of that dark side of American society on social media. Let us all buckle up before November 8th. Ben, it's always good to see you. Thanks for your reporting on all of this. Senior reporter for NBC News, Ben Collins, good Friday evening to you. Okay, we have one more story ahead here tonight, and I will say it is a positive one just four days out from the election. Stay tuned. We will be right back. It is the Friday night of the last weekend before the midterms, and I'm going to leave you on an up note. There may be four days to go before official election day but Americans have already been voting in massive numbers. Right now, 36 million Americans have cast a ballot in these midterm races, which is on track to be a record-breaking number. And they've been casting those ballots either through early in-person voting or by returning ballots to drop boxes or through the mail. As worried as people are about the future of this country, people are out there doing the right thing, which is voting. And that is great for democracy undeniably. That is the only way this process works and stays working. So keep doing it. If you haven't already, go cast that ballot. I'll see you on the other side. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right
0: first.
5: Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.